Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In January of 1961, just a few days before John F. Kennedy was sworn into office, President Eisenhower gave what would become one of the most famous speeches of his life. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. From that speech, we tend to remember one particular part. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. But there was another part of the same farewell speech that's been less noticed, a line mostly based on secrets that few people knew at the time, and it, too, revealed Eisenhower's deep understanding of where the military was headed. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. The president knew that this elite was on the rise because he had green-lighted the vehicle that would facilitate its rise, an organization that became known as DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. What Eisenhower didn't know was that DARPA would affect the future in unimaginable ways. It would change the war in Vietnam and much later in Iraq. It would send operatives to the other side of the world with suitcases of cash. It would secretly investigate ways to walk on water and whether extrasensory perception worked. It would change the economy of the nation by bringing us the Internet and self-driving cars. But back in the late 1950s, when Eisenhower greenlighted DARPA, he felt trapped by events beyond his control. It's the biggest story of the year, possibly the number one story of the century. This launching of the Russian satellite, which brings into the realm of possibility all those wild science fiction stories of interplanetary travel. You know, there's a tendency to look back at Sputnik now as if it launched and the entire nation was staring up at the sky in a panic. But the truth was somewhere in between. That's Sharon Weinberger, Washington bureau chief for Yahoo News and author of the book, the Imagineers of War, the untold story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. President Eisenhower knew things that the public didn't know. He knew that the military, for instance, was working on a top-secret aircraft called the U-2, which would be able to overfly the Soviet Union at a high altitude. He knew that the idea of classified reconnaissance satellites that could take Earth images were under development. But the Soviet Union was ahead, and so his attempt to sort of like, don't panic, nothing to worry about, you know, this was seized on by, by opponents as a political opportunity, as these things often happen. And he pretty much lost out on that. I think he realized that that the public reaction was, was overtaking his sort of very calm response. Indeed, Eisenhower had told officials in meetings in the fall of 1957, which was when Sputnik launched, to play down this whole Sputnik thing, don't make a big deal of it, which didn't quite work out. Still, though, the president wasn't about to let the military swallow up everything it wanted. And what he did was something very, very important. So when when DARPA was created, it was the nation's first space agency. It took all civil and military satellites together in one agency. But Eisenhower, even at the time, did not want to be pushed by the military to make all of space military. Um, He was being advised by civilian satellites. So he said, even with the creation of this new agency, when I create a civilian space agency, 
which became NASA um, some months later, those programs, the civil programs, will go over to this new NASA. But preventing DARPA from absorbing what would become NASA didn't exactly slow them down. By the early 1960s, as Eisenhower was exiting the scene, DARPA realized there was a new way for them to flex their muscles, to change the course of history, and to make sure that science and technology would give America an unprecedented edge. Which brings us to Saigon, 1961, and a man named William Goodell, who showed up in Vietnam with a suitcase full of cash. He was really future-looking, and he said, you know, I don't know that nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union is the most likely scenario we're going to face. I think it's going to be proxy wars in places like Southeast Asia. And he had gone on this grand tour and said, let's focus on you know, fighting in the jungles, on Vietnam, on making sure we can help local governments fight insurgencies. Goodell, in some ways, was clairvoyant. Proxy wars were looming, and fighting in the jungle was indeed ahead for American troops. But the notion that technology would prove to be America's road to victory, that was a little off the mark. Still, it was a conviction that Goodell shared with those at the highest levels of government. So he had gotten authorization from President Kennedy to set up basically a jungle warfare center called the Combat Development and Test Center. And he had had a longstanding relationship, Godel, with President Ziem, the president of South Vietnam. So with Kennedy's approval, and as well with President Ziem of South Vietnam, he took over this cash to literally set up a jungle warfare center. You know, what sort of technologies do we need? What sort of weapons to fight in the jungle against communist insurgents? which is why he showed up in Saigon with that suitcase of cash in 1961. Though Sharon Weinberger says he changed some of the cash into traveler's checks to free up a little space for a liquor bottle. In Vietnam, Goodell got to work on one of DARPA's first missions, infuse technology into the growing conflict, a conflict that by 1961 involved few U.S. troops and wouldn't be on the radar of most Americans for years. In those early days, Willem Goodell facilitated bringing over everything from working dogs. The South Vietnamese military hadn't had you know, dogs to try to track down people. He developed the idea of drones used in South Vietnam with folding bicycles. I think the one innovation that became very central to DARPA in those years that the agency would like to forget about was he helped start the first experiments with chemical defoliation um, in South Vietnam, which became perhaps the most controversial part of DARPA's legacy in Vietnam. And is that Agent Orange? Yeah, so actually it was, they were called the rainbow agents. There was purple and pink and, and orange. And Agent Orange, which was simply the chemical composition of this defoliant, became the most commonly known, and thus all of chemical defoliation in Vietnam eventually came to be known as Agent Orange, but there were actually a number of different of the rainbow agents. So he had spoken about this with President Ziem, who was very enthusiastic with the idea. It was to serve two purposes. One was to try to eliminate the subsistence crops that the Viet Cong, the communist insurgents were growing. They were basically living off things they grew. And the second part was to get rid of jungle foliage that they were using as cover for attacks on the South Vietnamese military. Um, so those were the two original purposes for it. So when you think about all this technology that was pushed into Vietnam, and you think about like how long the war went on and you know how um, controversial it became within the U.S., do you feel like the sort of emphasis within the American military on like, yeah, there are technological solutions here 
was the wrong emphasis. And it was just sort of there were a lot of things you could do technologically, but it wasn't the solution to the war. No. And in fact, I mean, William Godal, who was the the man who developed this Vietnam program, which was actually went beyond Vietnam. It was the idea to develop sort of a science of counterinsurgency around the globe. But, you know, when he quite tragically, he ended up um, going to jail over this Vietnam War work. And, And some 10 years later, when he was interviewed for an internal history and was asked to, to name one success out of this Vietnam program called Project Agile. He said none. And he said the problem was we tried to win the war with technology, and, and that couldn't be done. But I, I think he was he had been, was very embittered by his own experience. But if you look back to his vision of what he wanted to do, his idea was never to win the war with technology. I think that's mm. sort of what it, it, it turned into. He had this idea of, you know, we don't want U.S. troops in, in Southeast Asia. So how do you find ways to work with the South Vietnamese military, with the South Vietnamese government, to help them defeat this insurgency on his own? It, and that wasn't a technology. It was a strategy. Um I think when people think of DARPA, they think of like, you know, stealth aircraft and smart missiles. Um, But uh, you point out, we were talking about insurgency, that there was also a kind of real psychological aspect to them. I mean, like they got interested in ESP, you know, whether people could sense things from other rooms and know numbers. That is almost an incredible thing that they spent real money and had like real, I don't know, quote unquote experts come in and talk about ESP. Yeah, you know, there's echoes of this in the present with um, some of the news reports you've seen of the Pentagon looking at UFOs. Um, so the idea, again, back in the sort of heyday of you know, 1960s and 1970s, this sort of try anything attitude. And DARPA really would. You know, the idea of a DARPA was you try risky projects, you know, trying to solve or stop the Vietnam War. That's sort of the riskiest project you can come up with. But, right. you know, you look at things that are on the edge, on the edge of science or technology. And so what you referred to was actually back in the early 1970s when the intelligence community was involved in funding some of this parapsychology work and asked DARPA to get involved. And so the DARPA director at the time, Steve Lukasik, said, "Okay, I'm a little skeptical of it, but we will go take a look. And, you know, they sent one of their scientists out to a lab in California that was being funded by the CIA to do parapsychology experiments. You know, someone with psychic capabilities, can they remote view, as the term is called, a base in the Soviet Union? And the program manager came back and and, and says, yeah, this is it's just garbage. Mm. How much do you think DARPA sort of was doing its science in secret? How much were they like talking to President Kennedy or Johnson or Nixon? Like how much were they saying, hey, this is the stuff we're working on at the presidential level? So in the early days of DARPA, there was a lot of involvement and personal connections with the White House and with the president. So in the case of Vietnam, President Kennedy had personally authorized William Goodell to go set up this jungle warfare center. Mm-hmm. You know, Dwight Eisenhower had authorized the start of DARPA and was involved directly with some of the early space projects that DARPA did. Later, as years went on, it was less at the presidential level. And in fact, you know, today I would say roughly a third of DARPA's budget is classified. And I don't know, it would be hard to go back over all those years and say, was that always the case. Mm -hmm. But certainly there was a lot of secret work. In fact, there was one case after the assassination of President Kennedy 
when DARPA was tasked by the Pentagon to try to come up with technologies for presidential protection. And when I found this, you know, it was a, a top secret project. And when you look at the correspondence of the National Archives, they were trying to keep this project secret not only from Congress, which was starting to ask questions, but from the new president who didn't want to be really? seen as sort of hiding behind technology. So that huh. was secret from everyone. So let's talk about some of the ways in which DARPA has changed uh, both war and our lives since it was created. First off, this was the agency that created stealth aircraft. And you write in your book about the fact that stealth aircraft was inspired by, if you can possibly believe it, an invisible rabbit. Uh, kind of amazing. Yeah. So this question of a stealth aircraft, sometimes called an invisible aircraft, of course, these weren't invisible to the human eye. The idea was to build an aircraft that would be invisible to radar, um, specifically to, at the time to Soviet air defense radar. And it was a very, it, it had been sort of discussed for years. And there were a few true believers in it. But a lot of people, especially in the Air Force, just thought this wasn't possible. I mean, you know, experiments and tests had been done. They had looked at the science of it. It, and there was just no way to reduce what's known as the radar cross-section enough to make it invisible to radar. So there was this concept bouncing around by one guy in the Pentagon called Harvey, which was named after an invisible rabbit in right. an old Jimmy Stewart film. And that was his idea of an invisible aircraft, one that could evade radar. And DARPA built the first prototype, and that led eventually to the Air Force building the F-117, the first stealth aircraft. One of probably the most famous thing that ever has come out of DARPA is, in essence, the Internet. Can you talk about how that got started, why it ever got started? So it got started in the early 1960s, and there's sort of two competing theories around it, and I think the truth is somewhere in between. One was that it was started to come up with a nuclear command and control system. You know, this is developed in sort of a mythology that the internet was created as, you know, an alternate communications command and control system for nuclear war. And then the competing theory is, oh, no, no, it was just scientists looking to communicate with each other. And the truth is a little bit in between that the Pentagon was very interested in nuclear command and control and the role of computers and computers working with each other in that. And so they authorized DARPA to start up a command and control program. DARPA turned around and hired a psychologist with an expertise in computers um, named J.C.R. Licklider who, you know, sort of took a look at this nuclear command and control tasking, but said, let's step back and look at something broader. Let's look at how people will interact with computers in the future and hmm. transform that. And he had this vision of networked computers. He did this early demonstration at DARPA that someone told me about. He was trying to explain, you know, someday you'll be in your kitchen and you'll be able to download from this network a recipe. And, you know, some of the people were like, well, who cares? <laughs> But he had this real vision of what computer networking would look like in the future. And how did this nascent Internet work its way out of the military and into sort of civilian population? Like how long did that take? Well, so I would call it the, the genius of benign neglect that, you know, Lick Leiter was at DARPA in the early 1960s. And what DARPA directors at the time told me was they didn't, you know, they knew he was really, really smart. They didn't really get what he was doing. Um, but it was such a small program. I mean, really low monetary value compared to the other things DARPA was working on, the Vietnam War and missile defense. They just let it go. So by 1968, this had developed into the whole idea of the ARPANET, of linking different computer sites together 
on a network. But it would be another well over a decade before ARPANET transitioned to the modern internet when it was transferred to the civil world to the National Science Foundation that became the modern internet. So we're talking from the early 1960s, the early DARPA work on computer networking, up to the late 1980s. Does that say to you that even ideas that are sometimes like cast off or people are like, "Mm," even, even within the military, even within DARPA, which is supposed to be so cutting edge, that even there, ideas are still cast off, which turn out to have tremendous potential? I think that happens every day. I Mm -hmm. think it happens in the military. I'm sure it happens out in the commercial world as well. I think what has allowed DARPA to work when it works well, and there are times when it doesn't work well, is that, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, we're going to look at every far-fetched idea. But you know what? Just because something is risky doesn't mean it's worth doing. Otherwise, we'd all buy lottery tickets every day. (laughs) When DARPA works well, it's willing to look at the far-fetched ideas, whether it's the parapsychology or, oh, my God, you know, we're going to build an invisible aircraft. Mm -hmm. That's kind of crazy. But, you know, can go about in a methodological, scientific way to evaluate these ideas. And then if they sort of pass that first test, to do prototypes and develop them and see, does it work? And a lot of them don't work. But to do that smartly, to think about what may be so crazy that it may work, but also to know which ideas are so crazy that they absolutely won't work, to know that difference is is vital to success. Okay, so let's pause here, and in just a minute, we're going to talk about how some of those crazy ideas caught the eye of a fellow named Dick Cheney um, and how they started to shape the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm talking to Sharon Weinberger, who's the author of The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. If you want to read more about DARPA's impact on both Vietnam and also the creation of the Internet, um, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub, back in just a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. The first Gulf War was quick. It started in the summer of 1990 and lasted just about six months. Afterwards, one man at DARPA, the science and technology engine of the military, thought he had a great idea. Create a kind of video game simulation of one of the war's major battles. It took a ton of work to computerize the fighting, to make people feel like they were there so they could zoom in on any part of the battle. But when the simulation was done, it was impressive. General Colin Powell, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was wowed, as were congresspeople who saw it. No one, though, was more taken with the simulation than the Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, who felt that if he could have just shown that simulation to Saddam Hussein, Hussein would have surrendered on the spot. About a dozen years later, Cheney was back in the White House, convinced that technology might help him win another war in Iraq. You know, DARPA, they wanted to have this top-level interest. It had been, you know, maybe a couple decades before DARPA had been of interest to the White House. So you have Dick Cheney, the vice president of the United States, coming. It's like, wow, if we can get sort of top-cover interest from him, we're gold. That's Sharon Weinberger, Washington bureau chief for Yahoo News and author of The Imagineers of War, the untold story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. 
And so what they decide is, you know, you know Dick Cheney, he, he responds really well, you know, to pictures. <laughs> so, you know, they created this briefing for him and for Donald Rumsfeld, focusing on some of the more far out ideas. And one of the ideas was super soldiers, the idea of, you know, cognitively enhanced, biologically enhanced soldiers. And this was something that um, apparently Dick Cheney really loved. DARPA, the agency that President Eisenhower had reluctantly okayed back in the 1950s, had been working on risky, far-out ideas like enhanced super soldiers for a long time. During the Vietnam War, they developed Agent Orange, which both did its job as a chemical defoliant and ended up poisoning many of those who came into contact with it, both Vietnamese and American. DARPA then went on to develop stealth aircraft and the Internet, But in the 1990s, many in the organization felt like they were in the wilderness. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan helped bring their technology, their research, back into the spotlight. That was when folks like General David Petraeus, who commanded U.S. forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan, started looking at DARPA's work on how to win a counterinsurgency, work that had been done to help ensure victory in Vietnam. They were reading studies that had been sponsored by DARPA back in the 1960s. Um, But the thing is, they were sort of reading what they wanted to read. I guess my criticism of sort of the general Petraeuses and the acolytes around him was, you know, they were reading the studies, but not really looking at, well, what were the results of trying to apply these lessons? Still, in the early 2000s, whatever the logic, DARPA was back. Whether it was with old social science research, which hadn't really panned out, or with the notion that technology could help win wars in faraway places. Sharon Weinberger says that the super-enhanced soldier idea that Vice President Cheney was hoping for, soldiers that could be stronger, that could survive massive blood loss, that didn't come to fruition. But parts of the research for that project did end up having an important use. Some of these ideas really were, I mean, they were science fiction, but they were being studied scientifically. Are there ways that you can have, you know, humans work directly with machines by, you know, tapping brain signals? But what you saw over the years was that this technology did get developed, but not quite the way people thought. As the Iraq and Afghanistan wars ramped up and the biggest killer of U.S. and coalition troops was improvised explosive devices and people were losing limbs, some of this work on enhancement, which was supposed to make soldiers stronger, switched gears to things like neuroprosthetics that could be controlled directly by the human mind. So rather than making soldiers stronger, how do you help those soldiers who have been injured in the wars operate back in the civilian world? If you had to to think about what DARPA has done since 9-11, what would you say, you know, in, in almost 20 years, like what has its biggest contribution been? I mean, that, I mean it could be for positive, it could be for negative, but like how has it changed things? I think on the more optimistic side, one of the most successful projects in the post-9-11 years has been autonomous vehicles, driverless cars, which are still just coming to fruition. I mean, these are not, you know, changing our society yet, but we're on the cusp of that. And that all came rather directly out of two things. A was decades of research that DARPA had funded in robotics and in computer science. And then very directly, starting around 2004, 2005, DARPA began a series of contests of races called the Grand Challenge 
in the California Nevada desert, which was to can we you know give a cash prize for people to develop cars that can drive autonomously through a race obstacle course, and eventually what happened was Google sort of employed the winner of the grand challenge that became the basis of Google's autonomous car uh, driverless car work, and then of course a number of other companies that we know about, including Uber, have gotten involved. But that all came very directly out of DARPA's work. That has been the biggest success. On perhaps, um, you know, I don't know what they call it, a success, pessimistic, optimistic. The counterterrorism work that DARPA got involved in immediately after 9-11 was a very controversial program called Total Information Awareness, which was about bringing in, you know, can we create a sort of the ultimate database Mm -hmm. from commercial data, intelligence data to find patterns that will help us identify the next terrorist attack. That became a political lightning rod in part because it was led by Admiral John Poindexter of Iran-Contra days. It got shut down and much of the work got moved to the National Security Agency. Some people say that that work became the basis of much of sort of the surveillance work that, you know, we now read about both through the Edward Snowden disclosures. Um, That may be giving it too much credit, but certainly DARPA played an important role in that. If, If DARPA was the place where stealth aircraft came out of, the internet really was born there. All these things that really did change our lives and and countries and warfare. Is it at a moment where it's hard for it to compete with, there's such a big technology industry now, which was just not true in the late 50s when, when DARPA was created. And I just wonder, like, what the race for talent is like. Can DARPA get the best people? Can they offer the most money? I think you just identified the two of the biggest problems for DARPA today. One is exactly that, that, you know, when DARPA got into funding, you know, computer networking and computer science, it created modern computer science. In the 1960s, nobody else was funding it. It's like the only game in town. And so they're going to get the best people. Yeah. Exactly. So now we come around to artificial intelligence, an area of importance these days for the military as well as for society. And DARPA wants to be involved in that. But the money it can bring to bear on that is pretty small compared to the rest of you know the commercial and technological sector. So it tries to look for areas where it can leverage that. But, but you're right, it's really hard. And then also the, the question of people, you know, are you going to attract someone from Google who's earning, you know, over 500000 a year and say, come, you know, work for the government for, you know, one forty. I mean, that's that's always been a problem. I almost think that's less of a problem than the first problem. So what DARPA tries to do is to try to find areas where it can make a difference. And I think one of the areas that it's, it's focusing a lot on today is neuroscience, recovering memories, treating depression, treating post-traumatic stress disorder with things like, you know, brain implants and, and with other methods. Do you think when you look back at all the work you've done and thinking about, you know, developing technology in the military, which is itself this kind of controversy, I mean, there's like plus sides to it, but there's also huge controversies attached. What does DARPA teach us, either like lessons we should learn or what do you come away from this whole project having learned yourself? Me personally, I come away with warfare is a human problem. And, you know, I've been recently at a lot of, you know, sort of events and conferences with people obsessing over artificial intelligence and we must ban robotic warfare and the fears of terminators. And and I think there's a a professor out in California, Patrick McRae, who calls these wishful worries, you know, worrying about things that don't yet exist. Sure, am I worried about, you know, robotic warfare? But the lesson I drew out of DARPA is that 
warfare is a human problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can kill a lot of people with machetes. You know, you can with nuclear bombs as well. But technology transforms warfare. It changes it. DARPA has changed warfare, but technology doesn't solve warfare. Mm -hmm. Sharon Weinberger is the Washington bureau chief for Yahoo News. She's also author of the book, The Imagineers of War, the untold story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. If you want to learn more about how Dick Cheney tried to create super soldiers, we've got an article on our website about the push to let soldiers control robots with their thoughts. That's at innovationhub.org.